by uh, just in this last week. Uh, the, the, they're trying to do a, a up, an updated version of every one of the books of the New Testament. They're drawing on Book of Mormon or on uh, New Testament scholars at BYU to do that. Brother Wayman has the whole thing. I suspect what's going to happen in our scholarship, by the way, is that we will see ourselves using more and more of these kind of things to supplement the King James Version. Okay. Along with that, if I'm not quite sure on, on his, this is part of where he drew his book from. It's always good to have a study Bible. Uh, I like the Oxford NRSV version. Um, so if I'm looking at Luke, now I have King James and I have Brother Brown's and I have Kent, uh, Brother Wayman's and I have, and I will actually check uh, the Oxford NRSV as well. Uh, and suddenly these verses, and, and what we're going to find in the next few weeks is when we start talking about the parables and things like that, you're going to find traditional ways that we have looked and tried to frame the parables turn out to be in some places completely different. Wait till, wait till we get to the prodigal son, and you're going to go, wow. Yeah. So I was in a Sunday school class once where somebody brought, brought up, oh, well, in the other version of the Bible, it says this and this, and that's an interesting point. And somebody else took us to task and reminded yes. us yes. that the brethren have commanded us. We, thou shalt use the King James Version, and there shall be no other versions. Yeah, we're, we're getting better. Because I think that has been the sense that says the King James Version is the Bible. And we don't use anything else. Um, and and we're, we're beginning to understand. We're just getting better. Our scholarship is getting better. Yeah? It's, it's freaking out. Is it getting wonky on us? Mm -hmm. Why? Is it doing that a lot? <laughs> It was just blue and then back to the screen. <coughs> yes? When are they coming out with Isaiah? <laughs> when are they coming out with Isaiah? So far everybody's picking on the New Testament. <coughs> However, if you want to understand Isaiah better, uh, the New Oxford, the NRSV is the Old Testament as well. It also has Maccabees and some of the others. That's awesome. Uh, now, I, I actually look at the New Jerusalem. Uh, it's the New Jerusalem translation. It's the, it's the Old Testament published by the Jewish Society. Uh, and I'll, I'll look at that to clarify Isaiah for me. Yeah. But my follow-up question then is, so if there's all these different versions. Yes. Ah, now you're going to find that the versions aren't completely, it isn't like they're writing a whole different version, but you're going to find that the words get changed into things that make it much more clear for us. And then what happens is sometimes is your understanding of the text will enable you as you look at these versions to kind of, kind of uh, pull all of that together and understand the text better. By the way, do you know who else did this? Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith, when it came to verses in the Bible, he would translate it one way for one talk and another way for another talk based on what it is that he was trying to teach. I've got like five different versions of Malachi uh, 3 and 4 that Joseph did in sermons and they were always the hearts of the children of the father, the hearts of the fathers of the children, and he will bring the priesthood of the fathers. And I mean, he just, he saw the text as kind of fluid based on the context and the spirit. So... I was 
Um, I think you mentioned once that Thomas Wayman has um, been comparing the old papyrus and our scriptures now, like the Doctrine and Covenants and the Book of Mormon to make sure that it's... Yeah. Well, and one of the things that Wayman will do in the New Testament here is that there are certain times he will say, um, this is what was in the older versions, but the very earliest versions of this say this. And that'll be in the footnote so that you can actually compare and look at it yourself. He is going back to the ancient... He is. And he'll, so I'll say the very earliest versions say this. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why when we get to it, I'll show you where the forgery is in the New Testament. Actually, in the book of 1 John that we know when and why that verse was added uh, and, ha and was not there until the 14th century. Yeah. You know, the, one of the things that bothers me about all of this, though, is, and I saw this happen coming from the process. Yeah, yeah. And ended up that this intellectual community then took the Bible and went through it and very carefully said, Jesus never said this. Yes. You know, and... I know, begins it right. Yeah, how do you distinguish between when you're getting, you know, something that, of course, is, we think is said, like the King James Version? Yeah. To, you know, accept somebody else's. See here, okay, she says, part of what happened in her experience in Protestantism is that the intellectuals kind of came in and started redoing the whole thing and saying, Jesus didn't say this or this is what he said this. Here's the problem with the King James Version. That's exactly what happened in the 16th century. <laughs> is that the intellectuals came in and said, here's, here's what we're doing. So part of what happens, Wayman and others are kind of bypassing King James and going back to saying, the first century Greek versions of Luke said this. That's where we know where the forgery comes from. Oh, okay. Because what we're ten we tend to say well the King James Version is the carved in stone granite version of what Jesus said. No, the King James Version was pulling on the Vulgate based on a group of scholars pulling on Tyndale and Tyndale doing the best that he could without having the ancient papyri in front of him. So what we well, the King James Version was kind of the best guess at the time, but we have used it so much and carved it in stone that we begin to see that uh, and, and Protestantism kind of uh, backed themselves into a corner in certain evangelical groups to say if our authority is in the Bible don't change the Bible you change one word you lose the authority of the Bible and 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 so now when they're locked into oh my gosh it has to the the, the earth had to have been created in six days because the Bible says six days and no the King James committee said six days but, but they've locked themselves into this very literal interpretation of the Bible and, and we can and our Protestantism shows up as a church when we start locking ourselves into that similar kind of thing yeah. I'm confident that this is part and parcel of the reason why the prophet is telling us that we need the gift of the Holy Ghost we, yes. we really need it now, we yep. talk about spirit all the time, but I don't think very many people know what spirit means. And spirit is motivation. What is the motivation of these people who've written these different versions? You know, and and as we align ourselves with the teachings of the church and are obedient, our sensitivity to the spirit is better. Right. And then we can interpret it. Well, and let me just say one last thing, then. Because um, I think if we're involving the spirit, now the importance of the text that we're looking at is what it means to you. Yes. 
It's like I listen to a general conference talk. You listen to a general conference talk and you get one thing that applies to your life and I get one thing that applies to my life. The texts were that way. The letters of Paul were a conference talk. Philippians and Ephesians and were, was a conference. I mean, it was a letter that was written, but each group, based on your struggle, will pull different things from the text. You know, Brigham Young made the comment that Joseph Smith, if he would have translated the Book of Mormon later, it would have been different. It would have been different. Exactly why. And, and Joseph Smith liked the, the, the uh, German version of the Bible better. He thought that was a better translation than King James. So, so when we look at these sources, this is why this is going to be a little bit more um, so on top of that let me add one more because in a sense uh, some of where, where I want to go with the class in this next semester there's some beautiful this is a beautiful resource one that I would suggest that that you ought to think about uh, getting if you want uh, some enjoyment. This is uh, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. Uh, Kenneth Bailey is a uh, uh, I think he's Anglican, but he lived in he lived in Israel and Syria and everything for about thirty years. And so, part of what we're look, when we start looking at the cultural things that were going on in there, including what the Syrian Christians said about the prodigal son, or what the Syrian Christians said about the Book of Job, or the Coptic Christians said about you know with their background and their their world that they live in, they looked at all of the the wedding feast through their eyes begins to have real rich meaning for us so this is one of the sources that I'm planning on drawing on quite a bit uh, Jesus through Middle Eastern eyes uh, yeah is this part of um, God speaking to the ten tribes and they write it no, it really isn't. There's still just the one tribe. It's, it's just, it's just that we're looking through through um, modern American eyes at Jewish traditions of the first century, and we're trying to put our view of the church and our view of what weddings should be, and what marriages should be, and what work should be, and the role of women should be, and uh, all of those kind of things, and superimpose it on them. And they're saying, no, that's not how it works. If you're going to understand Jesus who's speaking the common tongue to these people, you better understand the culture. Oh. How they saw women, how they saw marriage, how they saw uh, all those kind of things. Okay. And, has another book called Jesus through uh, the Mediterranean eyes, right? Yeah. Now, so, so, let, so, so these are ones that I would suggest, and then let me suggest two more. Um, when I've gone out and I've looked at what what uh, BYU New Testament scholars are reading and what the, and where they find value out there in the world, there are two books and they are fabulous. Um, and this this is in some ways as I read it and I'm and I'm listening to one of these on as I drive around. Uh, this is the modern C.S. Lewis. Uh, He's a guy by the name of N.T. Wright. He's become one of my big favorites lately. And he wrote two books, Simply Jesus and Simply Paul. I don't know if they're on Deseret Book. I know they're certainly on Amazon, and they're certainly on uh, books on tape. Yeah? I just 
bought the soup of Jesus, I think, for like $10 used on Amazon. Oh, you did? Oh, good. It's like brand new. Yeah, good stuff. And, and again, he'll, he'll begin to sound like um, C.S. Lewis. Because he, he, he's talking and he'll say things like, just exactly what, what was Jesus up to? <laughs> and what did he think he was doing? <laughs> And what did they think he was doing? And here's what he was doing, and here's what he was trying to do. And, you know, and he shut down the temple for three days. Why do you think he did that? <laughs> you know, and, and it's, it's, it's really good. So these are some of the sources when we start taking a look at it. It's not like we're going to study church history and we have the, the Joseph Smith papers and the Doctrine and Covenants. There's a broader range of knowledge we can bring to it and then see how we feel about the text ourselves and where it speaks to us. Does that make sense? Okay, so I'm, I'm really excited about this. I, I think as a class we're just going to enjoy this. And your study in gospel doctrine or your own home study of the New Testament will just explode if you see it in context. Yeah. This is really important what we're doing this year for this Come Follow Me of studying the New Testament. When we were stranded in the Krakow airport a few years back uh, because of fog, there was an American sitting next to me, waiting, and I found out he was an evangelical minister in that part of the world setting up churches. Right. And of course, we're always supposed to say who we are, and I told him who I was and my religion. He sits, he whips out his phone, and he comes up with a scripture in the, in the New Testament. And I said, well, we don't use that translation. We use the King James. So he clicks something else, and he shows me all the translations. I was in Wales. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. I, I, I'm sure I just fumbled through it. I, right. Well, think about what we've done with saints. The idea of saints was instead of writing, when writing a book about history, it wasn't, they didn't entrust it to the scholars. With saints, they entrusted it to uh, novel writers, English majors, script, uh, screenwriters to write a beautiful narrative. Why? So teenagers would read this. Do you want your teenagers to read the Bible? Get, get them to Wayman's version. <laughs> Because now, it, now it's readable and they will understand it and the idea, all of the highbrow stuff isn't, isn't even effective if nobody's going to read it. And, and, and Wayman's version especially is so read. It's like, it's like saints for the New Testament. And it just flows. It flows beautifully. He's done a great job on it. So, all right. So, that, so that's two weeks. No class next week. This is what we're going to start diving in. And I think in two weeks we're going to start talking about what does it mean to be Jewish? Both the history coming into there and then what did it, how did the, the uh, Pharisees see it versus the Sadducees? What does it mean to be essentially Jewish? So, yeah. I have a quick question. Uh, I'm not familiar with this also. I just have a question is why. Why do you pick up all these books? What are the backgrounds of this author and what direction the angle, you know? Yes. Your advice, you know what I <laughs> she, she says. She says, what, 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 why these books and why would we put these up? Where we go? Where, where we go? One of the things that I tried to do, especially as we're trying to move forward with the New Testament and put it in context, was that I was very interested in, in what the, the BYU religion department was looking at. What were, the, what were the books that they thought were based on their experience, that they thought were, were powerful and stuff like that. N.T. Wright's name kept coming up over and over and over, and so did Kenneth Bailey's. And so I'm kind of relying on, on those guys, some of the 
authors that I trust the most, including Wayment, uh, including uh, uh, Eric Huntsman, who is working on uh, a beautiful version of the book of John. I've heard him speak several times. Uh, and so these are, these are uh, L LDS authors that I trust at, at BYU, is where I went this direction. <laughs> A lot. See what? How many books have I got? Actually, if you look on my desk, I have very. I've just got a hand. I've got the Oxford. Uh, I've, I've got the Oxford. I've got uh, Waymans. I've got uh, Kent Brown's Luke. And then on my now Kindle's another thing. I got a lot of Kindles, and I. This is the third book I've read on Paul, so it's good. All right. That said. So. Shift gears a little bit. We're going to go from first century to the 1800s. Uh, as, I was, as I was looking at all of this, I was trying to get a sense of how to, how to present this. And, and it was only in, in kind of digging in and finding the research that I realized, uh, I realized something. And, and part of what's going to make this kind of a remarkable class, I'm going to tell you a story you've never heard before. I'm almost willing to bet that you haven't heard this story before. We're going to break it down so that you can begin to see kind of what occurred. But let me do it in this context. Uh, there are events in history that seem almost coincidental and they seem almost by accident and yet when you pull them together you can see God's hand in it. But it is, there are moments in time where history hangs in a balance and it could easily go one way or the other based on, on something. The uh, uh, Washington crossing the Delaware was one of those moments. And at the time, they had to, they had to think everybody's uh, conscriptions were ending. The army that he had was getting ready to go home. They were done. We're not beating the British. We haven't had a major victory yet. This is a, a fool's errand. We'll just go home and and be done with this. Washington thinks we got to have one more shot at this. And so he's going to make a decision right over the Christmas holiday to attack uh, the Russian, um, uh, yeah, the Hessian um, mercenaries. We're going to attack them at Trenton. But they're trying to cross in the middle of the night across the river. And he had to imagine how miserable it is when the ice storm shows up. And they go, oh, I can't believe we're having an ice storm on this one last battle. And it's only in retrospect that you look at this and say, the ice storm and the bitter cold that that was that night is what kept those guys in their cabins enough so that the American troops could sneak up and capture them and have the great victory at Trenton that sustained them through the rest of the winter. And it's just this fortuitous moment that you go, ah, it wasn't by accident so much. Uh, any Civil War buffs? <coughs> Anybody know anything about uh, General Order 903 or 904? <coughs> of all things, Robert E. Lee is attacking Maryland. And, he's wor and they're working their way up there. And he splits the army. 
And because now the army is splitting, he sits down and writes the exact orders. Longstreet's going to go here. Longstreet will attack here. I'm going to try and capture Harper's Ferry and the armory there. And we're going to do this. And then we'll meet over here at these towns. And there, and that's general order. And then, so then he, he wrote it. He threw two, uh, three cigars with it. And he sent it off to a general who promptly lost it. <laughs> And it landed on the grass, and after the army left, the Union comes in and occupies the same spot, and some private's walking around the grass. He goes, oh, look, piece of paper with cigars. <laughs> and starts reading and goes, oh, my gosh, look, look at this. It's, it's, it's Bob Lee's attack plan. <laughs> so he then runs it up the, uh, up the line, and finally gets up to the general, and they're able to stop him at Antietam based on the idea that fortuitously this general order had just fallen into the grass. Mm -hmm. If that doesn't happen, Lee probably takes Maryland and probably wins the war. It's a fortuitous moment that you go, in retrospect, the Lord may have had something to do with that. Today is one of those moments. There's a fortuitous moment where this church sat right on a knife's edge and because of a fortuitous moment, we have the church that we have. Is that a good enough tease? Whoa. It's a story you haven't heard. Okay, so let, let, me, let me set this up for you uh, about how this, how this comes together. And by the way, it's a fortuitous moment that I didn't know until midweek this week. When I was kind of digging and looking at stuff and I went, oh, oh. this is isn't well known. Okay. All right, so let's let's uh, we we finished last time with uh, the uh, martyrdom, uh, the prophet Joseph. They are uh, they're, the bodies of Joseph and Hiram are uh, washed, uh, put on a wagon. Uh, they're taken back to Nauvoo. Uh, Outside of Nauvoo, a thousand people meet the wagon as it's coming in. They walk it in. And then the bodies are, are placed. This is an old picture of the, the mansion house. Uh, they're put in the back room of the mansion house so that before the funeral, th there can be a viewing. And so... Uh, uh, you know, about 10,000 people come streaming through the front door of the mansion house, through the house, to see the, the bodies of Joseph and Hiram that are there. By the way, that, that original stone stoop is still there that all the people walked over. You, you don't want to ever miss the mansion house uh, when you're in Nauvoo. Okay, now, so they held the funeral. Uh, the funeral is uh, done up near the temple. A uh, special song written for that that funeral and that song was Praise to the Man written by W.W. Phelps who's also doing the eulogy. Why? Because uh, there's only four apostles in town. Willard Richards is still in shock and John Taylor's recovering from the, the shots. Um, so W.W. Phelps is kind of the highest left guy here. So he, he delivers the eulogy. Okay? <laughs> 
then they then Emma were fearing that there, because there is a, a rumor of a bounty on, on Joseph's head if somebody can get to the casket and and sever his head uh, they then put rocks and sand in the caskets and then they bury the bodies uh, across the street in the uh, Nauvoo house basement and those bodies won't be found until the late 1800s we actually have pictures of their skeletons when they were actually exhumed uh, and then they were placed in the in the uh, burial places where you can go to Nauvoo today to actually see them okay so now that's happened now think about the concerns that are out there right at this moment one Emma uh, who is still in shock and in pain and hurting uh, her concern also is for her family uh, Joseph had placed everything trusty he was the trustee and trust for all the church's uh, monies and properties he's now gone so because it, it, it all rolls to Emma and she is afraid that the church, whoever ends up being in charge, is going to pull that away from her and her family will be destitute. So that's Emma's concern. Number two, the, the concern is, who is the prophet? As far as Mother Smith is concerned, and we'll talk about this in a second, it will be one of her sons. It's supposed to be. Uh... The twelve have their ideas, but it's still not completely crystal clear to them. Uh, five of the, five or six of the twelve are still on the East Coast campaigning for Joseph's election, and they're just hearing about it. And so, there, Brigham is trying to gather as many apostles together as he can, and he's making straightway for Nauvoo at breakneck speed. Uh, but the one who will know before it all who believes that he had a vision uh, that Joseph had, was dead was Sidney Rigdon. Sidney is in Pennsylvania when all the when, when things got really bad in June he goes off to Pennsylvania and he hears that Joseph has been killed and, and he makes straightway for uh, for Nauvoo and he arrives on August Saturday August 3rd now uh, Oliver has a, um, or Oliver, Sidney Rigdon has a, uh, his biggest supporter is William Marks. William Marks is the state president in Nauvoo. And William Marks believes that Sidney should be the head of the church. So the first thing that when Sidney gets in on Saturday, he comes in, he meets with William Marks, and they kind of put together a plan, and we think the plan sounded something like this. If you become guardian of the church, William, I will make you patriarch. And William Marks, who was very close to Emma, says, and I think Emma will come with us, if there's any disputes. Why? Because one of the things that separated Sidney and William Marks and Emma is that those threes were not big fan of plural marriage. That was, that was there. Emma kind of was there, not there, not there, not obviously. You know, and you can't blame her for that at all. Okay. Uh, William Marks had kind of said no. Sidney Rigdon was, was no. Uh, and in a sense, so Sidney is kind of on the outs of, of the doctrinal developments. Sidney is still living about eight years to ten years in the past in Kirtland. 
So everything that doctrinally they were understanding in Kirtland, he's still kind of there. He's not really plugged into the newest doctrinal developments about ceilings, about plural marriage, uh, all of that uh, in Nauvoo. So he's kind of about 10 years behind. And that'll, that'll really show up in just a second. Okay, so that's the plan. So on Sunday, he's pushing William Marks for, here's what we need to do. I need to be able to preach to the people, and they need to vote on me as the guardian. And I would like to do that on Tuesday, the 6th. Let's do it on Tuesday the 6th. Why? Because the 12 aren't here yet. (laughs) And William Marks says, ah, gosh, that's a little fast. Uh, we'll plan on doing it on Thursday the 8th. Ah, okay, we'll do it on Thursday the 8th. Um, so, so they're going to, that, that's where they go. Uh, now, Parley knows now that Sydney is in town. Um, by the way, um, how did Sydney join the, who introduced the gospel to Sydney Rigdon? Think of your history. Harley P. Pratt. Because <laughs> remember, he is with Joe, he's with Oliver Cowdery uh, on their way to the visit the, the Lamanites. And they stop through Kirtland and they convert Sydney and that. So Parley and Sydney are good friends, and he's saying, You're here, let's talk about succession and what happens next. And Sydney keeps blowing him off. I've got another meeting I gotta be to. Nah, I'm just not getting there. I'm talking to somebody else. I gotta preach a sermon. So Sidney preaches on Sunday. Uh, he preaches uh, again on Tuesday. And, and he's giving them this, this uh, the, the sheep need to be taken care of speech. Joseph holds the keys. Um, so he preaches this wonderful Sunday sermon. But, but what he's actually doing in the other time is we think that he, he's meeting with William Marks and, and, uh, and Marks is intimating that Emma would be involved in this. So we got, so that's where we are. And they kind of crystallize a plan that on Thursday morning they're going to, to try and, and woo the saints to, to follow him. So he's going to, and his idea of the uh, guardianship, by the way, actually comes from Kirtland. If you look at the, the revelations that were coming forward in Kirtland, the sense was that the, the first presidency was equal in power to the twelve. So if, if as long as he's alive, Hiram's dead, Joseph's dead. I'm the remaining member of the First Presidency. I really have the power. And I'm equal to the Twelve. He's missed out on all the doctrinal developments, including the March 1844 thing where Joseph is saying, I'm rolling it off to the Twelve. That's why I say he's about ten years behind in the doctrinal development. But that's what he's believing. Okay? So, Mark's going to move the meeting to the Eighth. Tuesday night... Brigham and the rest of the twelve show up. Here's the posse, and the and the and the the uh, ferry pulls up. Uh, here come Brigham and the twelve. Now they're here. 
<coughs> where do we go from here? Parley pulls Brigham aside and goes, this is worse than we thought. I'm not sure what Sydney's up to, but it's bad. It's, wor- it's more bad than you think it is. It really is bad. <laughs> really? Okay. Okay, so let's do this. Get some sleep. We'll meet tomorrow. We'll now have a quorum of the 12. We now have enough of us. There are nine of us here. We can actually do this thing. Let's meet tomorrow morning, 11 o'clock, and decide what we do. So they, so they meet um, on uh, Wednesday, August 7th at the John Taylor House. Which is kind of fun. These places you can actually go in Nauvoo and actually go through the John Taylor house and see the little horse that he carved for his his daughter that he then leaves uh, to go west and then sneaks back under the cover of night to get that little rocking horse with the real hair, the horse's hair. Have you guys seen that one? It's fantastic, okay? That he carved himself, okay? All right, so August 7th. They have a private meeting of the Twelve at John Taylor's house. We know from Wilford Woodruff kind of the uh, agenda of this meeting. So here are the concerns. Scriptural patterns of succession. See, and it's easy for us at this moment to go, well, we've just watched, even just a year ago, we watched a natural succession of one president, death of one, and the prophet takes over, right? This was brand new stuff. Now, so, so let me ask you this. And if they're going to say, okay, what patterns do we have for prophets? Let's go to the Book of Mormon. In the Book of Mormon... If a prophet dies, who's going to succeed him? His oldest son. What if the oldest son, like under King Mosiah, decides he really doesn't want to do it? Where does it go? The next son. Sure. But there is a sense that this is a patriarchal father-to-son progression. Mosiah, Benjamin... Mosiah the second, and that's going to go to to one of the the sons. They turn it down. That's why they say, let's do judges. Oh, great. Yeah, we'll do judges instead of kings. Who are we going to anoint as the first judge? Alma. Alma. Who's going to succeed Alma? Oh, it's still patriarchal. (laughs) So even when we have kings or prophets, it's patriarchal. It's father to son. Okay, let's look in the Old Testament. How they do that in the Old Testament. Okay, we got Saul. Did Saul's son become? No, he was wicked. But now we're going to call David. Who's going to replace David? His son. And who's going to replace Solomon? His son. Oh, that's right. It's patriarchal. Joseph gave us the keys and priesthood, prophet to prophet to prophet, seems to be patriarchal. Uh, What does Joseph have in terms of sons? He's got three sons. Um, Joseph the third, Alexander, and and they don't know there's a third son because Emma is pregnant at the time of the martyrdom. 
she will give birth to David Hiram Smith and Alexander doesn't isn't that much involved but Joseph Smith the third and David Hiram become important figures in the in the reorganized church at that point um, and and as long as Brigham will keep keep looking at this he keeps saying I think it's somehow supposed to be patriarchal but how do we balance patriarchal with the fact that we have a quorum of the twelve with the keys how would we do that These sons have to be a member of the church and be ordained to the Quorum of the Twelve. That's how you would do it. And there's an everlasting hope on Brigham's part that these boys will accept the Quorum of the Twelve and will will join back with them and there's every expectation that they will be made members of the Quorum of the Twelve. How old were they at the time? Uh, Joseph Smith III was young um, and so it's one of the reasons why he doesn't even figure for another few years here um, and of course uh, David Hiram which, which my belief is and I've talked about this before I think David Hiram was the guy uh, if you look at pictures of David Hiram here on the right uh, he looks about what I would think Joseph would look like he had a very sensitive heart. He wrote, he wrote a number of poems. One of the songs we used to have in our hymn book called The Unknown Grave. Because dad's been buried in an unknown grave. We know that there are rocks in the casket. And we don't know because only Emma knew that the bodies had been buried in the mansion house. So he wrote a song called The Unknown Grave. And it's beautiful. It's a beautiful song. Um, but ultimately, David... Hiram, as he, he, he makes several trips to Utah and Idaho, and uh, it's hard to know what happened. Here, here's what we know for sure. Not long after David Hiram is spending time in Utah and Idaho, he comes back, appears to have some kind of mental break, and spends the rest of his life in an insane asylum. Hard to know whether that was some protection, if you're more cynical, or if he really did have a kind of an emotional break, um, since mom seemed to be um, susceptible to depression and things like that. Don't know. Uh, but there, but there's always a hope that uh, that one of the boys will actually do it. The problem is, is that Brigham Young has no love lost for Emma, and when they go to visit. Brigham in the Lion House about 1860 uh, about 1850 I think 60, 1860s uh, it's a pretty raucous angry meeting between Brigham and the boys and they walk away just appalled that he would say things like that about their mother no, it's not, that's their report mainly but Brigham was not happy with Emma so so there's problem number one and ultimately they just have to say well we don't know about this but we hope somewhere down the road if, if succession is going to be father to son and we think it should be patriarchal we can see some proof of that then, then hopefully we'll be able to get them in by the way was there some patriarchal father to son blessing that came from that first presidency was one of the descendants able to ultimately be the president who Hiram's son, not Joseph, is Hiram's son, and that would be Joseph F. 
Did his son become prophet? Joseph Fielding. Yeah. So there were at least two prophets that came through that line, but came in through what Brigham called the front door, not the back door. Okay. But anyway, that was the concern. What do we do about the sons? Because certainly it was Emma's concern, and it was really Mother Smith's concern. The problem is, is that we don't always talk about the fact that Joseph and Hiram were killed March 27th. Samuel dies on July 30th. So Samuel could have been up there except the fact that he was never involved in the leading uh, members of the church. The, that, reme- that leaves us with, and, and one Car- Carlos had died in the, from exposure to the, in the printing press at Nauvoo. That leaves William. And William is like the crazy uncle. <laughs> and it's really easy to say, no, we don't need to worry about William. He's just kind of nuts. And he was. Even though he's in the Quorum of the Twelve, because Joseph had really kind of pushed for him. If, if Will, the belief is if William hadn't have been uh, a member of the Quorum of the Twelve, W.W. W. Phelps would have been. Because it kind of came down to those guys. Anyway, different story for a different time. Anyway, so that was the concern. So that's concern number one. What do we do about the patriarch order and these sons? We're just going to have to roll forward and hope they come through the front door. Yes? To complicate things, there was a rumor that Joseph Smith had ordained it. If you go to the reorganized church, they would say there was a blessing that, that he gave to Joseph Smith III around February or March, I think. Something like that. That, that named him the successor. Uh, and it's hard to know whether that was a priesthood blessing or exactly what that was. I think in some ways Joseph kind of expected that Joseph Smith III, when he was older, would somehow have ended up. Uh, that son later denied that his father had ever done that. Yeah, and he also doesn't like the polygamy thing, Joseph Smith III. Because um, his mom didn't like it. So, Okay, all right. So, that's concern number one. That was, again, we're still in the meeting at 11 o'clock at John Taylor's house. Concern number one, patriarchal succession. Okay. We have another problem. A lot of the doctrinal development that was happening in Nauvoo um, needed to be kept sacred and private. Because had it been known publicly, Joseph was afraid what would happen is exactly what happened. So there were two things that that had happened that the general population in Nauvoo did not know about. Number one was a, a quorum, a council called the Council of Fifty. Um, Joseph, as where they were expecting the second coming, had put together what was called the Council of Fifty. We just got the, the Council of Fifty notes have now been added to Joseph Smith papers. But in essence, it says when the Savior comes, this is how the church will run the governments of the world. It was an it was a uh, not political, but it was a uh, municipal governmental body to be able to run the government part of the the world when the Savior comes. Called the Council of Fifty. A little bit heady, a little bit presumptuous, but we're putting together the Council of Fifty. But 
the, when the laws and the Higbees and the, uh, were looking at Joseph and they were alarmed by everything that he was doing, one of the uh, complaints they had against Joseph was that he was going to make himself a king. He was running for president, but he was really going to make himself a king. They had in mind, they were aware of the Council of Fifty. So that's where they were pushing back a little bit and going, we're on kind of uncomfortable with this Council of Fifty. Because by the way, he, he's now got an army. He's running for president. He's got an army, the Nauvoo Legion. And he's got a council for government over here. He looks like a king to us. So that's why they were a little nervous about the Council of Fifty. Okay? The second one, though was also a concern. And that's the Quorum of the Anointed. Those, those that had been uh, sealed and received their endowments in the red brick store, there are about 64 members of the, the priesthood Quorum of the Anointed. Men and women at, who understood that, that at this moment Polygamy was, was being practiced by some within the, within the quorum. It wasn't required, but Joseph was reaching out to some in the quorum of the anointed and asking them to, calling them in essence to do that, certainly the twelve. So, and, and all of the, the advanced understanding about ceilings and linking of generations and everything that would be plugged into the temple endowment was first being taught in the quorum of the anointed. Does that make sense? Okay. But that quorum of the anointed also understood about plural marriage. So here's the con so so let me lay out the concern. Here's the concern. If Sydney ends up becoming the president or the guardian of the church, what happens with the council of 50 and what happens with the quorum of the anointed? Because Sydney's still 10 years earlier. He's not involved in any of this. And two, what happens when he's looking at the Quorum of the Anointed and now the idea of plural marriage it becomes really wide known? Now we're in real trouble because the bigamy laws still exist. It's not going to be understood. So it's a big deal. It's a big moment. And they walk away from that meeting going, Sydney cannot, cannot become the guardian. It would be disastrous. This church would not survive if Sydney becomes the guardian. Okay. Questions on this? This makes it. This is the meeting at eleven o'clock on Wednesday. Okay. So what do we do? We're going to ask Sydney. Then we're going to let's meet again at four o'clock, and we're going to ask Sydney to come and explain his side of the story. We'll, we'll meet at the, at the 70s hall and we're going to invite the, the Nauvoo City Council, we're going to invite the Quorum of the Twelve, we're going to invite William Marks, we're just going to have a big airing among the leadership of the church in the 70s hall. Okay, so that's, that's what they do. So they have this meeting with Sidney Rigdon uh, and he, he makes his claim. I saw a vision of Joseph Smith. Uh, he wants me to do this. Uh, this I still hold the keys. I, I realize it's the 12 you do, but I'm equal to the 12. 
uh, and he goes on and on for about an hour and a half and explains his reasoning why Sidney should be the guy. Okay. It's interesting that as part of this, he actually invokes Section 76. <laughs> I think it's a nice little drop-in mention. When Joseph and I were in the spirit and we were looking at the, you know, the three degrees of glory and, and all that, and he's like, and this is where my power derives from, and, and the Savior came to us, and I'm telling you, he's ten years earlier. And he's just kind of in that, in that realm. So he's putting this out there, and this is why I should be the guardian of the church. Which Brigham Young flatly re rejects. Uh, and uh, Wilfred Woodruff calls Sidney's Rigdon a second-rate vision. <laughs> I don't know what he means by a second-rate vision, but it's a second-rate vision. Okay. Now, Wilfred Woodruff. And they, they, they all then agree, before they get done, that we will then have a general meeting on Tuesday the 13th to sort all this stuff out in front of the people. Obviously, you believe you have your claims. The 12 believes that we have our claims. We will put it in front of the people on Tuesday the 13th and, and we'll, we'll figure it out. Lovely. The other, they, they do two other things. One is they set a meeting for the next morning at ten o'clock. I said nine. Yeah, nine o'clock, and it will be at the uh, um, Willard Richards home. Which, by the way, drop in note for those of you who like to visit Nauvoo. The Willard Richards home is now a bed and breakfast. It's right at the bottom of the hill. Uh, that home is still there. And the meeting that the, the, the place they used as the office and the place that they where Joseph actually sealed Willard Richards and his wife is the, is the top bedroom in that bed and breakfast. And we've stayed there. You can stay in that room. And, and it's, it's, it's a very, very cool little house. But it is the Willard Richards home that Joseph had built for Willard Richards. Okay? I would stay there next time you go. It's, it's, I'm telling you, it's worth it. Okay? Alright. So we're going to have a private meeting at the Willard Richards office at 9 o'clock the next morning. Okay? And Oh, 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 oh. One last thing. There is one last thing. What do, we, what do we do about Emma? Emma is worried about money. She's worried about the trustee and trust. She needs to know that we support her. We're not going to try and pull all of her properties away from her and leave her family destitute. So Parley and I can't remember who else. Then we'll then go over to Emma's, over to the mansion house, give her $1,000 with a reassurance that we are not going to take your properties away from you. Your family will be safe under the Quorum of the Twelve. So we think we've got Emma placated. <laughs> We're going to meet the next morning at 9 o'clock. Now, here's the moment. This is the moment on which I think the church stood on a knife, edge of a knife, to quote J.R.R. Tolkien. And could have gone one way or the other. And this to me is, the more I pondered about this and the more I read, the more miraculous this moment became. And it's this moment. 
Okay? Nine o'clock the next morning. There's a private meeting with the twelve at, at uh, Willard Richards' office. By the way, that is Willard Richards' home there. That's, that's the bed and breakfast you can stay in. Uh, the little uh, wine cellar off to the side here was built by the Icarians later and it has it actually has stones from the original Nauvoo temple in it that you can actually go up and look and see the actual stones like some of the sunstones are kind of right in there it's, it's very cool uh, okay private meeting with the 12 at Willard Richards office the 12 gather there at 9 o'clock but the one person who is the most compunctual, OCD, controlling guy in the entire quorum of the Twelve misses the meeting. Guess who missed the meeting? Brigham Young. I was right. Who called the meeting, was going to chair the meeting, plan the meeting, and doesn't show. That's the moment. Brigham Young doesn't come to his own meeting at 9 o'clock. Okay? Ever exact and ever punctual miss the meeting and what makes this even crazier to me is that later in a meeting we have the notes he actually denied that he missed the meeting. He denied that there was a meeting and that he missed it. What? His, his statement is... Does any of you know of my making an appointment and not being there? I'm always there, he bristled. I don't own to that. And if such an item ever goes into the history of the church, I'll tear it out, even if written in a book of gold. I don't miss meetings. Okay? Then he goes, but recollection comes a little bit later, and he goes, by talking about it, I begin to re recollect it a little. <laughs> I miss the meeting. No, I don't miss meetings. Oh. I don't do it. Now, we don't know if he slept in. We're just overwhelmed by everything going on. Uh, if, he, if he just spaced it. But this is the moment because an amazing thing happens. He missed the meeting. The 12 is located in the Willard Richards office. It's on top third floor of... Th there they are. Okay? And... Don't want to see that. He looks out the window or mid morning and he goes, Ha! People are kind of wandering into the grove. Oh, that's right. Sidney Rigdon was going to do a little prayer meeting. You know, preach a sermon. I had to go, you know, I had to go just kind of check it out. Nothing going on today. The big meeting is going to be on Tuesday the 13th. And Brigham just wanders over to the grove to, uh, to listen on the, on the periphery of Sidney Rigdon giving a sermon. He doesn't even make him, he's not even sitting on the stand. He just kind of, he hasn't even been seen by the, the group for months. He's been off, they came in, they've been in constant meetings for 48 hours. He just stands on the periphery and listens to the meeting. And what he hears blows him away. Sidney Rigdon 
Uh, I, I, my own personal belief is that Sydney sustained a uh, kind of severe head trauma at the beating at the John Johnson farm uh, when his head was dragged across the frozen ground because Sydney was never really quite the same after that beating. Uh, I was reading somebody else's comments the other day. They believe that Sydney might have been bipolar, manic depressive, because we kept seeing these two swings on the part of Sydney. When Sydney's, regardless, when Cindy, when Sydney is on a rhetorical high, when he is doing his preacher thing, he is something to behold. And one of the last times that we saw this one was in Far West on the 4th of July when he's going to get up and get a sermon to the people of Far West and he's the first person to use the word extermination. If these people come to us, it will be a war of extermination between us and them. And we will win. Let them come. And of course the press loved that, those comments, you remember. And that's part of what brought on, brought the Mormon war to a head. Was Sidney Rigdon's rhetorical, over-the-top style at Far West. Well, guess what? That Sidney shows up here at Nauvoo. We don't, have the, we don't have the whole text. Here's the little bit that we do have. Sidney in that setting says something along the lines of, uh, when I am guardian, uh, we, we, God will be behind us and he will pour out a hundred tons of metal against our enemies and the blood will run so high it will be up to the, the, bri the horse's bridles. And then he says, and we don't know if this is humorous or not. You almost, it's got to be humorous, but it's not outside Sydney to do this. He says, and when that happens, I will go to London and I will drag Queen Victoria out of her castle by her nose. Yeah. Yes, this is Sydney in rare form. <laughs> okay. And I got to think, you know, Brigham, who's supposed to be at another meeting he doesn't know that he's supposed to be at, is on the periphery going, wow, <laughs> listen to this. And then at the end of 90 minutes in a, in a blowing wind, um, William Marks will jump up and say, now we need to hold the vote. Right now. As to whether he should be the guardian or not. Now's the moment. And that was the plan. At which point, if you're Brigham Young, what do you do? <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Well, here's what Brigham did. And this is, this is brilliant. This is, this, again, this is part of the moment. Um, Brigham, who's on the periphery, goes... Oh, no, we don't. <laughs> and he gets up and walks up onto the, onto the wagon. They're preaching from a wagon. He gets up on the wagon. He's kind of like, time out. Time, 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 time. Okay? We can't do this. If we're going to have a meeting of this sort, we need to have a what? How do we know? How do we transfer presidency and prophethood from one prophet to another? What must we have? A solemn assembly. 
We have to have a solemn assembly where we vote by quorums. And we don't have everybody here. So we can't do this. So on the spur of the moment, he says, we'll do it at 2 o'clock. So go home. I'll go get the 12. We'll get the Nauvoo High Council. We'll get everybody together. We'll get the high priest together. And we're going to have a meeting at 2 o'clock to determine this matter. Was there a precedent of solemn assemblies? Only, only with temples. But like I'm saying, uh, Brigham pulled this one out <laughs> and just said, no, we can't do this until we have a solemn assembly. He was, he was trying to, to uh, buy time. So yeah. he diffused, he didn't challenge Sydney. Right. Sydney Brigham. Right. Okay. He just says, no, we can't do this. We need to have a solemn assembly and all the quorums here so we can vote by quorums. Yeah. And everybody goes... Oh yeah. Oh yeah, we ought to do that. Okay. Okay. All right. That's that's what we'll do. Okay. So that's what they ended up doing. Uh, now the moment is what happens if if Brigham Young attends the meeting he's supposed to be in at nine o'clock with the twelve. He'd have missed it, and they'd have held a vote, and. Probably based on that, how would the vote have gone? Probably confirm Sydney. Mm -hmm. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Okay, he's in. Uh, the fact that he missed the meeting is the moment that where he's just like, if he hadn't have been there, he wouldn't have heard it. He wouldn't have known how to handle this. And once everybody voted for Sydney, try and put that genie back in the bottle. Try and say, well, that wasn't. We're going to hear it again. We're going to do it different. No, that would, have been, that would have been disastrous, and I think the church would have headed under a different... The schism there would have been massive. But because Brigham misses the meeting, he's there, he's able to call for, whoa, let's do this. We, I know we were going to do it on Tuesday, but it's today. It's 2 o'clock. We can't wait for this. They're ready to go, and Sydney set it up. Okay? So, he calls for a solemn assembly. This is basically uh, part of what he said at that moment. I wish now to speak, so it takes him about 45 minutes, they meet at 2, about 2.45, everybody's seated. The high priests are over here, the, high, the, the Quorum of the Twelve is on the stand, the uh, Nauvoo High Council is here as well, William Marks, everybody's here, now we can vote by quorums. And he says... I wish now to speak about the organization of the church. Sidney Rigdon and Amasa Lyman were counselors to Joseph. I asked, where's Joseph? He's gone beyond the veil. There's much, been much said about President Rigdon being president of the church, uh, leading the people, being the head. If the people want President Rigdon to lead them, they may have him. <laughs> but I say unto you that the Quorum of the Twelve have the keys of the kingdom of God in the world. They stand next to Joseph in the presidency of the church. They hold the keys and would have, you'd have to ordain any man unto that appointment that should be chosen if one was to be chosen. But you cannot appoint any man at our head because we have the keys. If you want any other man to lead you, take him and we will go our way and build up the kingdom in all the world. Okay? That was part of what he said. Okay? Now, 
the, the question is then raised about the mantle and what happened at that moment. The reality is, is that most of the people at that meeting never saw or heard Joseph. But the reality is, is that a handful did, uh, including my, uh, the, about the five or so most prominent voices and journals that are referred to when Joseph, when Joseph, Joseph's visage comes down over the top of Brigham. Uh, my pioneer grandfather is one of those five who says in his journal, I saw Joseph, I've heard Joseph, it was Joseph that I saw. Uh, but we have to realize that, and, and I have that journal, but we have to realize that the vast majority of the audience didn't have that experience. It, it seems to be limited to a handful. Okay, Most of what happened for most of them was just hearing Brigham Young. Now, what makes this wonderful on, it, on its point here? Yeah. This is probably a dumb question, but did Brigham know? No. That, uh, no, he didn't. She says, did Brigham know? And in his writings and everything, what Brigham describes, and I could have included that paragraph, Brigham says, while I was preaching to the people, I felt an overwhelming love and charity for them. So he feels the spirit come upon him, and in his own journal, he says his, his heart was just softened, and he felt such a love for the people. But he didn't. No, he didn't. He, no, no, he didn't describe it. Didn't didn't say anything about it. Um, so, anyway, so but some did, and 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 but th those conversations would be had after. It isn't like people were going, oh, it's Joseph, it's Joseph, Isaiah. It wasn't a, a noisy thing. It was, it, these people were having these experiences. Um, now, what does happen though, and I think this is incredibly ironic, um, so Brigham gets done and he sits down and he goes, okay, Sydney, take your turn. Well, Sydney had just preached for 90 minutes in the morning in a blowing wind. And he'd have to be raising his voice to be heard above the blowing wind, especially while he's going all rhetorical and dragging King Victoria, Queen Victoria out by her nose. You know, he's on a roll. He's got no voice left. He's got nothing left. So, in the irony of ironies, he goes, I can't speak for myself. But my position will be stated by... W.W. Phelps. W.W., get up and, you know, give my side of this. Okay. The man who just preached Joseph eulogy. So W.W. Phelps gets up and goes, I think it's Brigham and the Twelve. <laughs> Brigham and the Twelve have the keys. They're the ones that should lead this church. Uh, I'm supporting them. And sits down. No, no, he didn't have that experience either. He just, he's just supporting Brigham and the Twelve, as W. W. Phelps would do. So it's right after that they go, "Okay, all in favor of Brigham and the Twelve? Aye. Sidney Rigdon, shh, crickets. That's the moment. So, again, at, and, and we know that now. Um, I don't have time. There's a, there's a the nice little uh, BYU TV uh, video 
talking about the other lines of succession. There was a uh, James Strange who'd come out of Wisconsin in March, who started writing Visions, and he had several hundred, ultimately several thousand, follow him. Sidney Rigdon will take several hundred with him back to Pennsylvania. Uh, which the, he'll get kind of funky. I think you know the bipolar thing might be true. I think he's he gets kind of weird at the end of the the whole thing. They would they believe that the second coming was about to come, and so he would gather his his believers together, and they would stand there and they would go, "Okay, kingdom is coming." One, two, three. Everybody jump, jump. Like you know, we're going to catch the kingdom of vision as it comes along, and they always kept coming back down to the floor. It wouldn't. Uh, so Sydney's church never really kind of makes it. James Strange is more of a problem, uh, but ultimately the vast majority of the twelve, or the church, probably upwards of about eighty percent, uh, follow uh, the twelve. Yeah. So who organized the reorganized? What will happen is, she wants to know who organized the, the reorganized church. Remember, Joseph Smith III is pretty young. Uh, when the Strangeites, um, the, those under James Strange, start to form up in Wisconsin, for a while, uh, Will, both William Marks and William Smith will go up and join them for a little while. So does Johnny Page for a, for a short period of time. Um, Emma will live will move out of town for a while because it's still kind of a dicey place to be, but but the reorganized church will actually start to form several years later, and they will they will go with the patriarchal order and and go with Joseph Smith the third. Emma doesn't join them. Joins who? The reorganized. Church. She does. She, Emma's part of the the reorganized church, um, and she, and actually when you go into um, if you go into the the uh, Community of Christ Museum and Visitor Center, you can see a lot of her stuff. And she still features prominently in their church with the. You actually can see, by the way, the paintings of uh, David Hiram Smith that, that he did, including one of the Tree of Life that is fantastic. It's my favorite one of all time of the Tree of Life, is the painting that David Hiram painted. Um, you can also see a couple of the canes. Uh, one last thing, Emma did take, it is true that Emma had, there were canes that were made of the, the uh, coffins that, of Joseph and Hiram. They were made into canes and they would take the canes and then the very top of them would have like a little, like a little glass ball to it and they would remove the top of that and she took several locks of hair from Joseph's head and those that were uh, kind of special she gave them as gifts. She would take one of the uh, 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 hair and put it on the top of that cane and then they would screw that back down so that they would have one of Joseph's wow. hairs in their cane. Uh, Wilford Woodruff has one of those. You can actually see the, the black cane that Brigham Young pointed to in the Salt Lake Valley to say this is where we'll build our temple. The belief is that that was one of those canes. I can't say that for sure, but my reading suggests that that's, because it's the black cane, and you can see that black cane in the daughters of the Utah Pioneers Museum across from the Capitol in Salt Lake. So, so there's the moment. There's the moment. Had, had Brigham gone to the meeting where he's supposed to be, uh, church would have been much different. <laughs> to me, it was a miraculous moment that saved the church. So, comments on any of this? Yeah. The patriarchal ideas. Yeah. I feel like you would be creating a church royal 
family. Yes. I mean, maybe back in the Old Testament that was a but I just don't see how that would ever be right. No, uh, she says it seems like if you were going father to son, it would be like having a church royal family. Um, and, and you're right, it, it, could, it could dangerously get that way. That's why I think Brigham was able to settle it by saying, it's still, like for instance, they'd look at King Saul. What if King Saul goes wonky on us? <laughs> what do we do? Well, the prophet could actually come in and say, well, you know, we're going to appoint another king. So sometimes the prophet still has sway over that kingship. But when it's a prophet father to son, that's a harder thing. <laughs> Remember the sons of Eli? You know, they're driving everybody out. Yeah. Well, when we were there at one time, we were in the organized uh, neighborhood. Uh-huh. Um, my husband asked, uh, what happened when they didn't have, there was one man who didn't have a uh, son. And they said, well, we worked that out. We just yeah, she said, the problem was with the, 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 that's a great point. The problem was with the community of Christ at that time, the reorganized church, was that they did go father to son until they ran out of sons. They ran out of descendants. And then they had to kind of have a big vote to decide who was going to pick it up from there. So, yeah, it, it, it has its problems, but it, it makes perfect sense that Joseph would at least be thinking that way because everything he did was so rooted in the Old Testament and back to Abraham, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is, th- is a f- son, grandson, and great-grandson. Now they're, they're following that patriarchal order, so it had to be worked out a little bit uh, there. But Joseph kind of bypassed that by putting the keys among the entire 12 and having the senior apostle become the prophet. Yeah. Uh, my great-grandfather was in that meeting when the mantle fell upon Brigham Young. Yeah. And uh, I have his written testimony. Yes. What was his name? What was his name? Oliver DeMille. Oh, yes. Named after Oliver Cowboy. Ah, yes, Oliver DeMille is one of those. Because again, there's not many, but there are a handful enough so that skeptics on the outside can say, well, we, did, we think they made it up. But there's enough of them having a common experience among themselves to say, no, there were a number of people that had that, that experience. Um, but it, but it, it just was not well known. So, yeah. This was the time when Lyman White took the group to Texas to... Yeah, Lyman White is one of those little break-offs. And he says, Joseph, before he died, told me to go down to Texas. So I'm going to take my group to Texas. And he comes down to Texas. And Joseph is killed. Because Lyman White is not there when it's happening. And, and he says, but Joseph never rescinded that. So I'm supposed to be in Texas. And there were several times that Brigham is reaching out to Lyman White and saying, Joseph called you the ram of the mountain, the wild ram of the mountains. I mean, you're, you're the guy. We need you here. And Lyman White said, no, nope, sorry. Uh, I'm, I'm supposed to be in Texas. Uh, barbecue's better. <laughs> But, but he, he turned down Brigham several times to go back up to Utah. The 12 did eventually say, okay, <laughs> you can go to Texas. Yeah, you, you, go, you go do that. And in fact, that actually became a deal, a side note, it actually became a deal when uh, uh, during the um, uh, Mormon War, uh, the, the Utah War, when Johnson's army is coming out, it's 1857, uh, there was a question, where do we go? 
Where could we go? And, and Mexico was a possibility. Vancouver Island was a possibility which caused them to annex Vancouver Island into Canada, which is a story for another time. Uh, Texas was also a possibility because there was a belief that they had to have a, a southern back door. If the army comes in here, we're going to have to slide out and go somewhere. And Texas or Mexico is our, is our best possibility. Where in Texas did you Just south of Fredericksburg, down the hill country. Okay. Uh, years ago, one of the Uh, well. so don't go with it. It's it's not, it's in the museum. Right. <laughs> okay, yeah. The thought I've had from time to time is that Mammoth seemed a lot of flats and not going west of the same. But Lucy not No, she didn't. And no one gets her, you know. She doesn't get any grief either, does she? Um, no, and, and maybe we'll kind of, kind of in wrapping up here. Uh, Mother Smith decides to stay with Emma and the grandkids. Uh, she had a little. If you go up to the, uh, if you go into the uh, mansion house, you can see Joseph and and Emma's bedroom, and then there's a little step down area. And ultimately, after Father Smith died, that's where that's where Mother Smith lived up there, and she stayed. She stayed close to Emma. Um, she was always much more kind of warm though to the twelve than than was Emma. So, okay, so a year in. What a journey, uh, kind of going through church history. Uh, if, if anything, and I thought a number of you said it beautifully last week, that part of what we've discovered with church history, and this is our moment in time to kind of see the continuation of that, is that doctrine developed as there were questions. Sometimes the, the, the doctrine changed, principles changed as more light and knowledge was received, that Joseph was willing to keep adding, and it just kind of kept opening up. And it kept opening up. Uh, sometimes I think in the church, at certain moments of the church, we've tended to want to carve in stone or codify where we are. Somehow that that's, that's threatening if the church is going to make changes. But if, but if anything in the first, in jo, during Joseph's time in organizing the church tells us, it should tell us that the church believes in continuing revelation, that it will respond to new light and challenges as it comes, and that the brethren will respond to that. Now, a church the size of this one moves a lot slower. It's not as nimble in making its changes. Unless you've got President Nelson who says that we'll change as fast as we need to. <laughs> Buckle up. But there was a sense of a growing and developing. And I, I think that, that puts the onus on us, especially those of us who are a little older, with a little snow on the mountain, to say, well, we always did this. Why would we do anything different? That doesn't make any sense. And we have to be able to say, no, when the prophets give are given new information, that may subsume what we believed and what we did prior to this. Uh, and the, the first history of this church should tell us just how the Lord responds to questions and things like that. So I, I'm grateful that we have this ability with the Joseph Smith papers to see the changes as they grow, see the developments as they, as they appear, uh, and then put that in context about what we may see in the next couple of years with the church's, church's changes. So I have a great, like we said last time, I have a greater testimony of Joseph Smith 
Smith today than I did a year ago. And I'm grateful that we, we've had a chance to kind of walk through this. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.